I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Ford, and Julia Borston. Today, the Nasdaq's on pace to break a two-month losing streak, despite some pretty ugly results from the likes of Amazon, Meta, and others, as you know. Can stocks continue to rally into year-end? We're going to discuss it. Right now, the Nasdaq, a quarter percent off the session lows. CEO of On Semis with us on the heels of their results. We'll also look ahead to AMD and Qualcomm later on this week. And finally, the street going opposite directions on Roku and Paramount today. Julia is going to break down some of the sell side calls that we got earlier this morning, John. All right, Carl, let's start with the market setup for the week ahead. Uh, a lot of semiconductor names headlining this week's earnings, as you mentioned. Let's bring in Mike Santoli, who's got more on how we're trading. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. Yeah, well, uh, in the past week or so, we're trading without much mercy for any companies that disappoint, as we've uh, seen pretty starkly with uh, Microsoft, Amazon, some of those that you mentioned. But it's it's really been a story of discernment, too, between those companies that are disappointing and still do have too expensive valuations for not being reliable and, and the rest of them. Uh, here you have Apple trading on a year-to-date basis right in line with what's this? That's not another tech stock. It's not part of the NASDAQ. It's the low-volatility S&P 500 ETF, the stocks that have demonstrated the lowest volatility uh, of all the index members. So it's really the stability premium that's been driving Apple. It's not because growth has been fast. It's been because it's reliable and financially uh, they are obviously very sound. Now, you have uh, the NASDAQ 100, which has the one of the weaker profiles here. Here is the June low, and you see it did make a lower low there. Not all the, not the overall market uh, has not. It's not really regained much of it. This one here is small cap tech. So within the small cap 600 index, that's the technology sector. That's actually been uh, a little bit resilient here and shows you that they kind of took their pain before we got into this period. So again, it's one of separation of those companies where people maybe were a little bit complacent about how reliable the results were going to be against those that maybe have taken their medicine already. Hey, Mike, really quick, on Meta specifically, now below 95 today, uh, that's going to be a multi-year low. A year ago, 320 and change. Uh, to what degree is the final day of the month uh, putting some or pushing some to get the books cleaner? Arguably, you've seen some of that, and not just because maybe you don't want to show uh, holding so much of it, but there has been a tax loss selling dynamic in uh, October. A lot of mutual <coughs> funds have an October fiscal year end. Now, a lot of that should be done already, uh, but there's still a sense out there. There's no hurry, perhaps, uh, to buy it right now. A lot of these companies are being targeted for, are their expense, is their expense discipline uh, believable? Do we think they have a commitment in that direction? Mike Santoli, thank you very much. Staying on the market with tech facing countless headwinds, including more rate hikes on the horizon, our next guest has some concerns about big tech's growth story, and he is focusing on small and medium tech names in today's market. Joining us now, 645 Ventures co-founder and managing partner, Namdi Okike. Namdi, good morning, and thanks for being with us. Uh, thanks Namdi, for having believe- me. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. You believe that big tech has largely lost its financial discipline, but these are still some of the strongest balance sheets in tech. So what should investors do here? Yeah, I think you have to think about a couple of things. I think the first thing is long-term capital expenditure. I think one reason that Meta, um, Amazon, and uh, other companies have gone down is because of large CapEx uh, investments. And they're making very long-term investments. So as an example, Meta spent $36 billion over the past four years on the metaverse. Um, and the revenue for the metaverse uh, actually went down this year for them. So I think those investments are kind of causing investors to question uh, the feasibility of those long-term projects. 
And I think investors are lo really looking toward capital efficiency and profitability for those companies. I think that's one of the reasons why those stocks have dropped. But I, to your point, there definitely are a lot of strengths in the balance sheet. I think So I think it's more a matter of kind of like long-term growth and profitability versus capital strength. Right. So let's leave Meta aside then, because it feels like the market has collectively decided that this is too much in capital expenditures um, yes. on the metaverse. Could you argue, though, that some of the others, like Alphabet, um, like even Amazon that spends a lot in CapEx, that they've earned the right to experiment. They have to play offense now or they risk being disrupted by smaller players. So I think it's partly a nature of where we are in the market, right? So I think in, in good times when the market is growing, uh, when companies are growing, I think investors look for that investment, uh, the future potential, and they kind of give CEOs deference in terms of making those decisions. I think in these types of times when markets are depressed, investors look more toward capital efficiency and profitability. And I think that's what's happening now. Yes, there should be some deference to those CEOs, but there also should be near-term ROI. So I think investors should be able to see, are those investments kind of paying off? I think to your point, Alphabet's made large investments. I think they've grown their headcount over 30% over the last year. They put a lot into sales and marketing, a lot into R&D. And I think investors are just looking for more evidence that those investments are good long-term investments. Namdi. I contrast this with uh, Amazon and Apple, right? Amazon yes. built out uh, AWS 20 mm -hmm. years ago, and it wasn't like they were taking um, massive charges you know, against the bottom line to, and yes. saying it's to build the, the cloud, which people didn't understand yet. Apple explored building a TV. It's been exploring making a car, but not yes. spending billions upon billions of dollars on it. So how do you gauge whether a company is spending too much on yes. things that, that are unproven. And frankly, if they aren't spending enough, because if these companies don't invest the right amount in the future, then they will end up getting uh, left behind. Yeah, it's a very, very good, good, good question. I think it's what CEOs kind of struggle with and wrestle with. I think there's a couple elements to think about in that context. I think the first is what's the size of the investment? So as a percentage of revenue, as a percentage of your assets, how big is that investment? So in the case of Meta, they've made a very substantial investment to the point where their operating profit has gone down substantially in the past quarter. I think investors kind of question that. So I think the first thing is the size. I think the second thing is, are there quick wins? So in the case of AWS, for example, that business from the get-go was really generating revenue, very profitable, very high gross margin. And so if there's early evidence of growth, I think that's also a plus. In the case of Meta, again, their metaverse business went down this year in terms of revenue. So that's not the right direction. And again, that's a long-term investment. So that might be a 10-year type window. But again, you have to think about kind of what are those quick wins? What's the size of the investment? And again, what period are you in? If you're in a period where the market's doing great, again, investors give more deference because again, uh, growth is rewarded. In this period of time when rates are higher, growth is not rewarded as much. And so if you're making large investments that are kind of uh, reducing profitability, investors really question that. And that's right. really what happened last week. But then you also get these cases, and I'm thinking of Intel here, where companies need to make a dramatic change and they need yes. to do it quickly, right? Or at least that's the argument that management makes. And so that means, you know, throwing some excess cargo overboard. It means the painful uh, process yeah. of laying off employees, perhaps. Sure. But I think maybe investors haven't thought metas in that position to have to make yeah. drastic changes um, or, or risk the business model collapsing. Should we interpret this level of investment as meaning that Mark Zuckerberg thinks that they're in that position? Yeah, that's a really good question. You made up, you brought up a couple elements. So I think the first thing is the stock perceived to be a growth stock. 
right? So historically, Intel was maybe until 10 years ago. Now, Intel is more of a value play. I don't perceive Intel as a rapid grower. It's more an old school business. It's got a very profitable underlying business, but it's not perceived to be a growth company. I think Meta is very different. Historically, it was perceived to be a growth company, fast revenue growth. If you look at Meta, it actually declined in revenue in the past quarter. So it's not growing. And so I think Mark Zuckerberg said, hey, what's a new business that I can get growth from? Because I, I already have 3 billion users and I've really kind of tapped out user growth. And so they are trying to, in a sense, pivot the business. It's hard to do for a company of that size, but that's a little bit of what they're doing. And that's very different than how investors have perceived that company historically. And so that shift in terms of investor sentiment, perception of what that stock is, I think is really important. That's, what, that's what's happening now. Right. Difficult shift, too. Uh, Namdi, if investors are looking for something outside of big tech, you say they should maybe look for some of the smaller to medium tech companies that are profitable, have profitable yeah. growth, that is. Uh, give right. us your names and why you like them. Yeah, there's a couple that I like. I think the first is CoStar. So CoStar is a large uh, real estate information business. Uh, they provide a set of products. So LoopNet is a very large marketplace for commercial real estate. I think that business is well situated given that large corporations are looking to either sell their real estate or downsize. So that marketplace, for, in my perspective, is poised for growth. They also have apartments.com uh, in this environment when, when less people are buying homes and looking to more rent. I think that business is well positioned. So that company is quite profitable. I think that's an interesting stock for somebody looking at a, uh, a small kind of tech stock. Uh, Paylocity is another one. Uh, they are a growing provider of cloud uh, HR software and, and payroll software. Uh, their penetration of the market is still relatively low. So there's over a million businesses uh, that would fit in their target market. I think they have around 30 to 40,000 customers. So I think that one is also one that's poised for growth. And that stock has done really well uh, this year. And the last is a very old school company, a company called Jack Henry that's been around for a long time. Um, they are a provider of software to banks. Uh, I think they're well positioned in terms of their product portfolio and their stock has also done well. So I think one theme is looking at, again, small and medium, medium kind of cap uh, tech stocks. I think those are well positioned in this environment, especially ones that are profitable and, and growing. Namdi, thanks for being with us. Appreciate your picks. Namdi, Thank OPK. I want to address something that CNBC reported Friday. I tweeted that a team of data engineers were laid off at Twitter after speaking to two people outside of headquarters who claimed that they were. They were not real employees, and I didn't do enough to confirm who they were. They got me, and that is on me. We, I regret the mistake. Now, there continues to be many moving parts to this story, and for the latest, let's bring in our own Julia Borston. Julia. Well, Deirdre, there's growing concern about misinformation and hate speech on Twitter since Elon Musk took over after reports of a spike in racist posts on the platform. On Sunday, Musk himself spread misinformation. He tweeted out a link to an anti-LGBTQ conspiracy theory about the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. He deleted the post, which fact-checkers called fake and defamatory, but after it had drawn more than 86,000 likes and 24,000 retweets on the platform. GM, a major advertiser, has said it's suspending advertising as it evaluates Twitter's new direction. So the question now is whether Musk's looser content moderation policies alienate advertisers, users, and potentially draw a crackdown from the EU, which has stricter laws about offensive content than we have here in the U.S. And then there's the question of employee retention. Elon Musk addressed a report that he could start firing employees before November 1st. That's when employees are set to get stock grants that vest that day. That's tomorrow. Now, he tweeted, 
in response to an article about this saying this is false. Now, of course, we are waiting to see what changes Elon Musk makes to Twitter's platform. Musk tweeted out, quote, whole verification process is being revamped right now. He's reportedly looking to make users subscribe to Twitter Blue for as much as $20 per month in order for them to be verified. Twitter Blue currently costs $5 per month and verification currently costs nothing. Carl? Uh, Julia, while we got you, I want to get you on Roku today. Webbush does trim their target to 75, but City, with this positive catalyst watch uh, on the stock ahead of earnings on Wednesday, they say Roku could bring in a top-line beat 20% ahead of estimates. Well, Carl, I also have to point out that Wells Fargo warns that there's another risky print ahead. So the question is, if Roku is really indicative of the health of the streaming market and the health of how much these streaming platforms want to pay for advertising, um, as well as its own streaming ad business, that might be a good indicator of how they're going to perform. But also just take a look at Roku shares. The stock is off so dramatically. I think investors are trying to figure out whether this is a bottom um, or whether it has more room to fall. But sort of mixed messages today from uh, from Wells Fargo along with that city note. Yeah, more than 75% year to date. Julia, thank you very much, Julia Borston. The CEO of OnSemi is coming up after the break. That stock well outperforming the broader market this year. Tech Check is just getting started. Take a look at some winners on the NDX this morning. A line's going to lead you this morning, but Pinduoduo is up there as well. Further down the list, some names that are going to report in the coming days, namely Regeneron and Marriott. We'll keep our eye on that, John. And for now, Carl, let's turn to OnSemi, reporting record revenue and earnings per share in Q3. But take a look at the stock. Mixed guide for the quarter ahead. Weighing on shares this morning, it's down 7%. CEO Hassan Al-Khuri joins us now for a closer look in a CNBC exclusive. Hassan, welcome. Um, the automotive and industrial areas did particularly well for you, as did your reduction in fixed costs l- leading up to this point. But uh, w- what kind of a slowdown is the company positioned for? Just a short term, a couple quarters, or a rough 2023 overall, if that should materialize? Yeah, look, if I, I, I wish I could tell you how long this is going to be. What we're doing is everything we can't control, we're tightening all the screws on it. You know, you've seen us be very, very proactive on uh, managing inventory down. Uh, that obviously led to uh, reducing starts in our non-strategic market. The worst thing you want to do is try to navigate a downturn while having a very large uh, inventory, whether it's internal or inventory at our distribution partner. So we've been very proactive, like you said, in reducing our forward uh, uh, potential costs that will drag our uh, gross margin. And that came at the impact of underutilization. We still feel in the short term this is the right thing to do as we grow into the auto and industrial driven by EVs and renewable energy. uh, That's going to keep fueling our growth, including in the fourth quarter uh, with the backdrop of demand, whatever that's going to do. So how do you feel about, I know how you feel in the long term about automotive and industrial. We've seen those areas continue to be strong for a number of semiconductor players. But in the medium term, and I'm talking over the next 12 to 18 months, what are the potential recession effects that you see 
on that market. I know it's not the overall market. You're more leaning into the driver assist and electrification parts of that. But is that going to continue to grow at a level that fuels your growth, even if the overall economy uh, continues to weaken? Yeah, so that, that's very important because I'm, I'm, I rename and so is the company very bullish on even the short term as well as our long term uh, uh, view of electrification, both for the vehicle and the electrification of the infrastructure with energy storage and, and energy distribution and renewable energy, you know, with auto and industrial part of our sustainable ecosystem. The short term, look, the SAR or the number total number of vehicles uh, may, may reduce because of demand. But one thing remains very, very certain, and that's uh, uh, common to every single OEM in every geography, is the number of EVs they will create or they will generate or manufacture in 2023 is going to be above the number of EVs they launched in 2022. That number is what's fueling our growth in the short term, and that's going to continue to fuel our growth in the long term. Uh, you know, Goldman's got a great note this morning out today talking about uh, supply chain resilience and basically the price you pay for more security in supply chain, uh, reshoring production. They do say that it appears limited to the semiconductor industry uh, so far. And they say that the cost is marginal because the end, end price of a product is, uh, is not largely due to the price of the semiconductor. But I wonder if you think overall net-net uh, what we're doing in, on, in reshoring is going to end up being productive long term. Uh, look, I think I think uh, stability of supply and supply assurance, whether it's onshoring or through a broader network of manufacturing, is important. It is something that our customers value. You know, part of our LTSAs or long-term supply agreement has really been focusing on supply assurance and supply resilience. Very different things, but they lead to the same thing, mm. where the customer gets what they want, when they want it, including uh, uh, for a very hard ramp like we have in silicon carbide. That supply assurance and supply resilience, you know, we have manufacturing in North America. We've been uh, uh, divesting some fabs overseas and moving some of that production to our North America fabs. But we also have uh, manufacturing facilities throughout the world and we're able to have that supply resiliency by having some technologies in multiple fabs. So we can mitigate any risk and, and any shortages or any uh, you know, localized disruptions through our fab network. So both of them, by coming back to some of uh, the technologies here in North America, but also cross-qualifying technologies and out of the fabs that we have around the world, are something that uh, our customers find very valuable and is shown by the large number of long-term supply agreements that we've disclosed today on the call. Hassan, um, your stock has outperformed many of your chip peers this year. How are you thinking about M&A? Does that give you room to do more deals or a bigger deal? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, we, we have a very solid uh, strategy. Our, our strategy of intelligent power, intelligent sensing has paid dividend, created a lot of value for shareholder. We see M&A as another tool to create shareholder value. Uh, our cash position is uh, very comfortable. Our debt position is, is uh, very comfortable. Our focus in the, uh, obviously is investing in our own business with our capital in order to grow uh, uh, the capacity and the supply that we need for our customers. But M&A is always uh, on the table, uh, but we can be very disciplined. We don't need to do M&A in order to uh, execute our strategy that we've been talking about. We will mm -hmm. use M&A to accelerate and to gain a yet more competitive advantage with a larger technology play.
Hassan, organically, what are you doing with headcount? First in R&D, then also in more of the SG&A areas. Yeah, what we said on the call is we're going to be very uh, disciplined with the discretionary spend. From the hiring perspective, we have not slowed down hire and we have not stopped any hiring. Uh, we're actually doubling down on a lot of our strategic areas like uh, uh, R&D, and we're going to continue to do that. Uh, we're not going to take our foot off the gas as far as, you know, the short-term uncertainty. We're going to manage discretionary spend, but we are not going to sacrifice our long-term product roadmap that is driving and fueling our growth uh, given the short-term uncertainty. So you can uh, uh, look at us managing OPEX very, very tightly, but exceed increasing OPEX in areas of R&D and other strategic hires. That's an important signal. Hassan, thank you. Hassan Al-Khuri. Thank you. Coming up after the break this morning, it has been a rough month for big tech earnings. As you know, Apple, one of the lone bright spots. Meta down more than 25% in October alone. How should you be thinking about the rest of earnings season? We'll discuss it when Tech Check's back in two minutes. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. We're going to keep our eye on the broader market today, final trading day of October. NASDAQ on pace to break a two-month losing streak. And if the Dow can stage a turnaround and finish up more than three points today, that does make it the best month since June of 1938. In a minute, we'll get a check on Paramount as well, getting a downgrade over at Wells. First, though, a news update with Bertha Coombs. Bertha. Hi, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. New signs today that the Fed may be having some success in slowing the economy as it seeks to fight inflation. The Chicago PMI, a barometer of Midwest manufacturing activity, fell to 45.2 for October. It's less than expected and below the 50 mark that separates expansion from contraction. Fed policymakers meet tomorrow and Wednesday, and another large interest rate hike is expected. One of today's Wall Street winners is Wynn Resorts. The stock is up more than 9% following news that investor Tillman Fertitta has taken a more than 6% stake in the resort operator. And two entertainment superstars doing big business. Taylor Swift's new album, Midnight's, has sold 1.58 million copies across various formats in its first week. That's the best sales week for any record since Adele's 25 back in 2015. And Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam topped the weekend movie box office for the second straight weekend, taking in another $27.7 million in domestic ticket sales. It's now sold $111 million in tickets domestically and $250 million worldwide. I guess it's treats for The Rock and Taylor Swift. Back to you. <laughs> uh, he'll like that one, Bertha. Thanks, <laughs> Bertha Coombs. Coming off a busy week of tech earnings, as you know, and heading right into the next one, Uber, DoorDash, and Airbnb among the names on deck. Question is, what did we learn from Snap and Amazon and Meta last week? Let's bring in City's Ron Josie. Talk about that, Ron. Appreciate the time today. Those three names, um, I wonder, is mobility and travel thematically the best thing we've got going right now? You know, Carl, it's, it's a really good question because what we saw was, and we saw this coming out of two key earnings as well, just a mix shift from, call it goods, 
to services and Uber's been out there sort of talking about an improving overall trend in, in mobility. I think travel has come up better as well, at least through Labor Day. So, you know, th- this will hopefully be a, a little bit of different earnings and results from what we saw for the last week and a half with uh, with Uber and Dash and others coming out this week. So we're hoping so. At the very least, you know, we're, we're always focused on top line, but, you know, we'll, we'll look for more details on costs as well and, and just curtailing overall expenses and preserving that margin. Right. Speaking of expenses, what do you think the lessons were in retrospect on Meta? And yeah. I guess what would it take to shake you off of your buy? Yeah, you know, Meta was really interesting. It's um, frankly, we heard engagement was better. We heard that and a lot of that was better because of their investments in AI and content discovery. We, we heard that short form video monetization is growing quite rapidly. We think they'll do it can do at least on reels, maybe five plus billion dollars in revenue. We heard newer ad units sort of driving revenue. But my point here is, regardless of what these call it better engagement trends um, and results on, on the top line, they can control the costs. And what we were looking for was basically some sort of better indication of, of where that control is coming from. What we learned overall was that, look, Meta is going to continue investing. And if these top line, better engagement, better revenue can can continue, then, you know, we think that'll help to drive better margin as as costs even go up a little bit. Right. So I guess what we learned here was, you know, costs are going up. Meta's going to be investing that that's not going to end anytime soon. We would hope we were hoping for a little bit more of a different outcome there. But if these newer um, ad products and, and uh, engagement rates can continue, I think that can solve a lot of what we're talking about on Meta. Ron, looking at the week ahead, we're going to get results from a number of unprofitable tech names that like to go by different metrics like adjusted EBITDA. So what do investors need to be aware of as they sort through them? Should they be looking at free cash flow, how to take into account things like stock-based yeah. comp? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the biggest takeaway from the, first, uh, from, the fir- from the first wave of earnings, if you will, just as the top line becomes more and more unknown, right, especially as we go into 23, the question is, what can these companies control? And you can control your expenses. And so free cash is absolutely emerging as the number one metric overall that we're looking at. Um, but then also, you know, we do look at adjusted EBITDA. Not every company is as profitable as, as searches and Google, right, and, and Alphabet or even Meta for that matter. And so EBITDA is absolutely something we're looking at. Uber is a great example of that. Um, we're looking for continued improvements in profitability across the mobility and delivery business. But then for that to flow through to cash flow. And, and at the end of the day, when, when the top line becomes that con, uh, sort of unclear, um, free cash flow is going to help to stabilize the business and keep the business going until we get some certainty on top line. And, and that's really where I think the most of the market is focused on going forward here, at least in the short term. Ron, question about the social media market right now and perhaps who uh, can take advantage of the situation. Twitter is no longer public and it's going through its own um, reorganization issues. Facebook's eye is elsewhere on the metaverse. Google gave up on social outside of of YouTube. So of the remaining players, I guess there's Snap, there's Pinterest. Who else is there? Is there anyone who's positioned to, to pick up, share, attention, momentum from the chaos? Well, I mean, what's interesting is there's always newer entrants coming in, right? And we see this with, of course, and I wouldn't say TikTok's newer entrant, but we're seeing this with Be Real, with TikTok and others out there um, that, that's causing the incumbents to always sort of reinvent and, and think about their business model. Um, picking up the pieces, look, at the end of the day, um, 
most users are on a social network. What's fascinating here, John, is this looking at Meta specifically and what they're doing on this content discovery side with AI focus is driving more usage based on ideas and trends and themes that you as we as consumers might like that are very targeted. And so I don't think social media is going anywhere. I don't think, don't think social networks are going anywhere. There's always going to be um, competitors coming up here. But as newer formats and forms take hold, it's interesting to see how users change um, change what we do online. That said, what Meta did and talked about last week with engagement being at all-time highs, even here in the U.S., I think that speaks volumes to just how much uh, they, they have changed their business and, and can continue to sort of reinvent. That said, it's really hard for newer guys to come in here or newer, newer uh, entrants to come in and compete when you have incumbents with three-plus billion daily or monthly active users here that, um, that can continue. So it's all about scale, I guess, is at the end of the day. Um, is how we look at skill in users and skill in advertisers. And one last thing, John, to your comment. One thing that Facebook and Meta did say is some resiliency in the small business side. And that is the core to a lot of what's online. That's the long tail. And the fact the SMBs are resilient, I think that's, that, that actually is a good longer-term trend. Uh, that's interesting. I think it was um, Ben Smith of Semaphore last week in the wake of earnings asked rhetorically on Twitter, has any social platform ever truly reversed a decline? And I'm not arguing that, that Facebook is in that position, but it, a, a, a frame of view like that would explain his willingness to bet so big on something that is still so far out, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I know, Carl. I mean, it's really fascinating, though. On, on the metaverse, so far out, unclear. We'll see what happens here. Nice to see some, I guess, some improving metrics overall. But we know that they're investing quite significantly into next year. And maybe those investments temper somewhat the 24. But that's a long way to, to move forward. So as we look at the here and now and think about engagement rates and, and what keeps us going on meta here is this engagement reach that all-time high or continue to grow here in the U.S. That is so key. And most importantly, it's how that engagement is growing. And it's growing increasingly via the short form video. But most importantly, it's short form video plus feed plus stories plus messenger. And you think about overall interactions across social and it's changing. And we're seeing this change across Meta on Facebook as well as Instagram and incorporating messenger and WhatsApp. And that's what's interesting. And what what really we find is a big opportunity for Meta going forward is, is incorporating all those core brands um, and, and really surface areas on on your devices. Yeah, everybody, everybody wants the everything app. Uh, Ron, we'll see if anybody yeah. can ever actually do it. Uh, Ron Josie, City, thanks, Ron. Thanks, guys. And there are more earnings on deck. A quick programming note as we head to break. Do not miss Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. That interview takes place at 7.30 a.m. Eastern. We're back in two. Reports this morning saying iPhone production at a major Chinese Foxconn plant could fall 30 percent as the company deals with COVID restrictions. We've had some pretty shocking video out showing employees trying to depart the factory. Our Eunice Yun is in Beijing with the latest. Eunice, those videos are, are shocking. They're circulating social media. Oh, absolutely. They're circulating on social media. Uh, uh, Apple supplier Foxconn is definitely in full on damage control mode. It's been denying reports that 20,000 of its workers got sick with COVID and 
also have been um, trying to reassure everyone that production has not been affected either. Uh, the company had um, granted an interview in local media today where it uh, vowed that it would improve the lives of the workers under the COVID curbs. Uh, the company uh, said that the uh, canteen services were going to resume all uh, by uh, November 1st. They also said that anybody who was suspected of infection or infected uh, would get better medical treatment and also would be transported to quarantine facilities. And also uh, the company said that those who decide to stay at the factory could potentially get up to $14 a day in a bonus, which would be tantamount to having an extra um, half month's salary um, all in all. So uh, the company really trying to make sure that these workers feel much more comfortable after those videos emerged, which showed mm -hmm. a lot of workers who were uh, streaming through fields, uh, marching, they said, uh, back home because they wanted to escape some of those COVID curbs. They said they've been complaining online, saying that the conditions at the uh, factory have deteriorated, that they're low on food as well as medical supplies um, because they live and work there. And then also a lot of the people have been quarantined there. Now, the company says that they are coordinating their efforts with other uh, facilities to ensure the uh, production. Uh, but at the same time, guys, it's it's, uh, you know, a time when there is a very strong demand for workers as we head mm -hmm. into this uh, holiday season in the United States as well as other places. Yeah, so Eunice, these videos are circulating our social media here in America, but I'm guessing it's probably more limited where you are on the ground in China. But this coupled with what's happening at Shanghai Disney, what's the sentiment on the ground? Is there a fear that these lockdowns could once again widen out and, and hit sort of the general public? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, no, they've, uh, the, the, the COVID restrictions and the lockdowns have tightened up um, even more after the uh, big leadership um, change, or not really a change, but a reshuffle with uh, President Xi coming out with even more power. There had been a, a hope um, among some people that maybe we'd see a little bit of an easing, uh, but that uh, really hasn't turned out to be the case at all. In fact, um, it, it just seems like local officials are even more dedicated to the idea of at least appearing as though they are in line with uh, the leadership under President Xi Jinping. Eunice, thank you for that. Uh, Eunice Yoon, obviously a huge story in China this morning. As we go to break, take a look at some of the biggest winners on the NASDAQ 100 for the month to date. Dexcom and ISRG are going to lead you, but you got names like Moderna, Gilead, Netflix, even Honeywell, Adobe, and Marriott further on down. Tech Check is back in a moment. Welcome back. Time for a gut check. Wells Fargo downgrading Paramount. Julia Borston's back with us, has more on that call. Julia? Well, John, Wells Fargo is lowering its price target for Paramount from $19 to $13, also downgrading the stock to underweight just weeks after downgrading the company to equal weight, saying that in addition to risks from cord cutting and sports rights cost increases, that the company is facing direct-to-consumer uncertainty on top of that uncertainty around linear subscribers. 
uh, writing, quote, Para Paramount either needs to shift its strategy or accept valuations closer to Warner Brothers Discovery and Fox. Paramount's content is undoubtedly valuable, but self-distributing via direct-to-consumer, that may not scale, devalues it since it doesn't monetize as effectively. Now, it's worth noting that Paramount shares, they're down about 5% today and down about 40% year-to-date. This all comes ahead of earnings, which are on Wednesday morning, and analysts are pretty split. 34% have sales, another 34% has a hold, and 31% of analysts have a buy rating on the stock. Carl? Julie, appreciate that. Obviously, we're going to be watching uh, that and a few other media earnings uh, during the week. Coming up after the break, Apollo is getting into crypto. Bitcoin trading roughly in line with the NASDAQ for October. Stay with us. Apollo is diving deeper into crypto, partnering with Anchorage Digital to store alternative assets for its clients. Apollo participated in the crypto bank's Series D funding round last year, valuing the platform at more than $3 billion. Joining us now, Anchorage Digital co-founder and president, Diogo Monica. Uh, Diogo, thanks for being on with us this morning. Which crypto assets are being held? How is it decided? And can you give us some color on the process through which you decide which ones? Yeah, so Anchorage Digital is going to be acting as the qualified custodian for Apollo-managed funds. That means that Apollo gets to choose whichever assets they want to add to their portfolios and offer to their clients. As far as Anchorage, what we do is we actually support access to hundreds of crypto assets that Apollo now has access to as part of our platform and gets to choose from. So is it hundreds then that they're offering to their customers? Which ones are being held? Well, right now, they're actually still in the process of defining it. Uh, I would say that uh, it's their decision on what they want to do. And it's like unlikely to be just one fund and unlikely to be just a couple of assets. And I do think that time will tell how these funds will perform. And thus, time will tell on how they increase the types of assets that they're actually holding. Okay, Diogo, as we said in the opening, you guys were valued at about $3 billion um, at the end of last year, obviously a very different market. How are you thinking about your company in terms of spending plans, marketing plans? What do you do in this moment? So Anchorage is in the enviable position of having raised at uh, about the right time and uh, still being uh, growing in a market that is effectively a bear market. We're adding clients, we're adding deposits to the platform, crypto assets, and uh, launching lots of partnerships such as this announcement with Apollo. So this, the, the history of uh, crypto and institutions coming into crypto, what we're seeing is this incessant drumbeat of uh, crypto asset managers and large institutions coming to this space, and that obviously benefits Anchorage. One thing to point out is obviously what we're doing now and what we're seeing now is a massive flight to safety. One way to describe it is Anchorage is the first federally chartered crypto bank, and we are winning more of a smaller pie at the moment during this bear market. But institutions are here for the long term, and it's very clear that their horizon is a very long term horizon. That's interesting. I mean, in terms of the marketing, I know that if five of the worst uh, ETF first year performances are all crypto related, is, is the pitch to a new investor that enough has been wrung out in terms of froth that this is a stable time to get in, uh, at least for the first time? 
I think the pitch is that these very large asset managers are coming in not at the top of the market, clearly, and they're coming in with fantastic brands, with fantastic partners, using a regulated qualified custodian. And so it looks a lot more like traditional funds than uh, crypto really looked three plus years ago. So in terms of timing, obviously, that's up to the investors to make an investment and really up to the Apollo managed funds on which, again, to the question of which crypto assets will be held, which assets to add to, to which funds. But right now, it seems like a good time as ever to actually come into crypto. Right. And it's been a lot less volatile, actually, this year than tech and even the broader markets, Diogo. Um, at the same time, though, what is, let's take Bitcoin, what's Bitcoin's value proposition? Will it always be this store of value for institutional investors or can it fulfill that early promise that it's going to transform financial markets and, you know, even eventually be a mode of transaction? Yeah, I think there's a lot of narratives overlaid in crypto in general and Bitcoin in specific. Obviously, it's very clear that the correlation of Bitcoin with the rest of tech stocks and the market in general really speaks to this being an asset that benefited heavily from loose monetary policy and from lots of liquidity. People have been calling crypto a liquidity sponge. So to a certain extent, of course, when liquidity dries up, that was going to be correlated with um, the tech stocks on the way down. However, there's many other narratives that are overlapping in crypto. And if we see the behavior of it trading sideways over the past six months or so, and actually not losing as much value as many of these tech stocks, actually we're uh, hoping to see finally a little bit of a decorrelation from the traditional financial um, uh, the traditional financial markets and really this narrative of store value of um, yeah. uh, resistance so, uh, sovereign resistant crypto mm -hmm. asset. I think all of these narratives are overlaid over the risk asset right now, and the the decoupling will eventually happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I said less volatile. It's still lost a fair amount of volume. We're just looking at a one-year chart, some 55 percent. Uh, Diogo, thanks so much for being with us today. Diogo Monaco. As we have to break, another quick programming note. Do you want to learn how to maximize your finances, invest in a brighter future? Sure you do. Join us virtually tomorrow, November 1st, for CNBC, Your Money. Hear from top financial experts. You can register at cnbcevents.com slash your money. Tech Check is back in a moment. One more thing. We've gotten a lot of color from the chip space these last few days. We just talked to OnSemi's CEO this morning, Intel's Gelsinger on Friday, talking about the state of the data center market. Take a listen. As we think about the data center market, we sort of view it in enterprise what happens with hyperscalers and what happens in China. And those are sort of the three big things that we look at. And as uh, you suggest, you know, they're softening in enterprise, some not as much softening in the cloud space, but we've definitely seen a stepping back for the first time in a while for the uh, big cloud guys. And we also heard the C-suite's take on U.S. chip restrictions against China. Here's Global, Global Foundry CEO Tom Caulfield. We need to get better balance. What's the other cost? We have such concentration for such a key ingredient for economic security. So this is what happens when things are inconvenient. It's which one's worse for you. Yeah. Right. So nothing comes without pain. Nothing comes without inconvenience. And you have to arbitrage between that risk reward. All, the, all this, of course, as AMD reports tomorrow night after cutting their revenue expectations earlier in the month. NXP is also on deck, John. Uh, Qualcomm AMD this week. Yeah, uh, on AMD, 
really, D, I think the watches have things deteriorated since that early October warning that caught so many mm -hmm. by surprise. That was mainly about client PCs. They said data center gaming embedded were, uh, were living up to expectations, but that color and trajectory is going to be important. Yeah, and the reason that warning caught markets sort of off guard a little bit is because AMD has been such a strong performer. It's been taking markets. So if it's not doing well, what does that mean for some of the other players, guys? Uh, certainly one to watch. Reminder also that tomorrow we have another crop of tech names reporting third quarter earnings. Uber in the morning, Airbnb, AMD, as I mentioned, Electronic Arts later in the afternoon. Uber CEO Dara Khosr Shahi will join Squawk Box tomorrow in a first on CNBC interview. Guys, Uber has fared better than some of the other gig economy names coming from maybe a lower valuation. But the idea that they are getting closer to profitability, that adjusted EBITDA profitability and free cash flow, that's what investors are going to be looking at. More progress there, Carl. Yep, Dara was pretty bullish on the heels of the last print, and we'll see what he says uh, tomorrow morning. Meantime, uh, indexes have been all over the map. We were making some progress in erasing losses, but the Dow's now down uh, some 80 points ahead of a very busy week, as you know. Let's get to Frank Holland today and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.